While you're being seated, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And today we're going to continue our series here in the book of Romans. Um, we know without a doubt that, uh, that God's Word has already penetrated us through our study here. We're going to continue our study today. When we were together in Romans a couple of weeks ago, we came to the end of a passage, really the, the first major section of the book, and today we're going to move forward with the next section. And I really believe this is a fitting passage um, to come to on this anniversary Sunday because of what we find here. Uh, our church has been all about this topic for 114 years. It's one of the clearest explanations of the gospel that we're going to find in the entire book of Romans that we're talking about today. We strive to be a gospel-centered church, meaning that everything that we do should be under the umbrella of the gospel. That means we are gospel-serving, we are gospel-preaching, we are committed to gospel-witnessing. Today's passage is a meaty, it's a deep passage. Uh, a couple of years ago, our, our staff had gone away for a staff retreat for, um, for a few days, and we were spending some time in prayer and planning, God, what do you have for us in our, in our church in the days ahead? And we went to a Brazilian steakhouse. Y'all been to a Brazilian steakhouse before? If you haven't, there's one here in town that you need to look up, okay? But a Brazilian steakhouse is absolutely wonderful. Now, they've got a salad bar, but if you waste a Brazilian steakhouse on a salad bar, something is wrong with you, all right? There's also a vegetable bar that's not real big. It's, it's, it's got a few vegetables on it. But when you go to a Brazilian steakhouse, you're not going for the vegetables and the salad. You're going for the meat. So what happens is you go in, you sit down, you order your drink, you get up, you go to the vegetable bar, you get your few vegetables, you come back and you sit down at your table, and on, in your place at your, at your table is a little card, it's a round card about yay big, like, like the size of a, um, of a little saucer maybe that will go underneath a, a cup. On one side is red, the other side is green. The red, if it is up, then that means that you don't want any more meat in that moment, okay? If it's green, it is game on. Go for it, get as much as you can. What happens is there's waiters, they walk around the restaurant and they're holding these big things of meat and they walk up to your table and they say, hey, do you want some filet or sirloin or sausage or chicken or do you want um, beef ribs or pork ribs or lamb, which why anybody wants the lamb when you got everything else, I don't know. But they ask if you want any of this meat and you tell them yes or no and, uh, and they get you that meat. Has anybody ever heard of the meat sweats? Y'all, listen, the meat sweats take place when you eat an enormous amount of meat in a short amount of time, and your body can't handle it. Now, none of us that day that I know of got the meat sweats, but we ate a whole lot of meat. Now, here's, here's, here's why I tell you that story. It's because we're coming to a section of Scripture here that reminds me of a Brazilian steakhouse. Paul is getting meaty with the word here. There are some deep truths that he's about to enter into that are important for us to understand and to, to, to not only understand, but to adapt and live with our lives. I want to jump in here. We're going to read. Actually, no, let, me, let me give you a quote here first from Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, said this about this passage. He said, this passage is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. In other words, what he's saying is it can all be boiled down to this, and this is the center of the most, most important part, in his opinion, of the whole Bible. Let's read uh, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, right there at the beginning of the, of the passage, verse 21, you find the words, but now, okay? But now, it's a transitional statement. This is the part, this is the beginning of a new section of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, is all about the condemnation that we are justly under as sinners. We are born sinners with a sin nature. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, not a single thing. And that's what Paul has outlined up to this point. So now we enter into this new section. So now that the true state of mankind in their sin nature has been shown, God's great grace can be shown. Now that the proven unrighteousness of mankind has been seen, the righteousness of God is manifested to us. And it's been manifested apart from the law. It's manifested and seen through Jesus. He says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They point to it, but they only point to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the law and the prophets long for this righteousness that they don't fully understand, but they know is coming. It's been promised over and over again. You, you see David in, um, in Psalm 51 cry out for this righteousness. He says, purge me with hyssop, I shall be, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, it's a longing for righteousness that prompts David to pray this. You get to some of the, the um, prophetic books, and you see that looking ahead, Isaiah would exclaim, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And this is a foretelling of what Jesus was going to do in the future. Jeremiah prophesied, This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Looking ahead, he's saying, Jesus will be called our righteousness. Ezekiel gives the promise that God will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. When the angel Gabriel brings a message from God to Daniel, God promises to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and bring everlasting righteousness. Looking ahead, he's going to do that. But then you get ahead to Acts chapter 10. And Peter's preaching to the Gentiles for the first time, and here's what he says. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, this applies to everybody. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And get this. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus is the one that has been prophesied about. He is the one the prophet said was going to come. Jesus is the one we preach. He is the one who saves a sinner and brings righteousness. All right, so let's go back to verses 21 and 22 again, okay? 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Before, the law pointed to the righteousness of God, but now it is seen clearly, it is manifested. He continues, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, as I just said, they point to it. But now, the righteousness of God is seen through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all. All who believe. Now, I gave you a quote a couple of moments ago from Martin Luther, um, and I was talking about how important he said that this passage is. He points to this passage as one that completely wrecked him and helped bring him into salvation. At the time, the Roman Catholic Church had so deviated from the gospel that it was super confusing about what it even meant to be a Christian. They taught that only the religious leaders should have access to God's word. They also taught that salvation was based on works and good intentions. And if you were good enough, then you had a chance at heaven. Their theology was so messed up that they even taught that living relatives of dead people could do good things and they could give money to help buy their loved ones, their dead loved ones, out of purgatory. And all the money for that went to the church. They prayed on the poor and they ignored the truth of God so that they could fill their pockets. Luther is a German monk, and at the time he had access to to God's word. He had the ability to read, and, and when he did, it absolutely wrecked him, and it led to his salvation. Coupled with Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in which he read that the righteous shall live by faith, this verse The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe was what led him to realize just how wrong he and the church at large had been. The righteousness of God that brings justification, redemption, and regeneration comes through faith in Jesus alone for everyone who believes. There is no other way to God except through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. So then Luther launches himself into the reformation of the church. Nothing besides Jesus will cut it. And listen, you can't partway be righteous and partway not be righteous. You're either all in or you're all out. Look at verse 23. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, how many of you uh, memorized that verse when you were a kid? For all have sinned. There's a lot of hands going up here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean that all fall short of the glory of God? And and here's here's what it means. God's glory is, is all of God put together, okay? Meaning that God's holiness, his incorruptible nature, his righteousness, the way that he's without without beginning or without end, his perfection, his immortality, all of those attributes of God and so many more, all put together make up the glory of God. There is nothing in this world more important than the glory of God. Nothing at all. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that we as humans were created for the, for the glory of God. We are created in his image. Our purpose is to be image bearers of the glory of God, which means that when people look at us, they're supposed to be able to see the glory of God in us and give God glory themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that God is glorified. He is held in high esteem because of our lives. 
What do people see when they observe your life? Um, would, it, would it appear to them as if you're living for your glory and building yourself up or for the glory of God? Which one would it be? I think most often, for a lot of us, it's I'm looking for ways to build myself up. But y'all, we cannot be image bearers of the glory of God if we're trying to build ourselves up. And I'll go even deeper than that and say we cannot be image bearers of the glory of God if we don't have a relationship with God. And it is our sin that causes us to fall way short of a relationship and therefore the glory of God. There's this one time that um, I wanted to see just how far I could shoot my bow and arrow, okay? So I'm at the edge of this really, really big field, and I remember picking out a, um, a, uh, a bush or a tree or something on the other end of the field, and I pulled my bow back and, and lifted it way up so I'd have the trajectory to help me, you know, maybe I would get more distance out of it, just to see if on the other side of that field I could get my arrow to get to that point. And I, and I released the arrow, and the arrow flew across the field, but it fell short of the target. In other words, there was no way that my bow was strong enough to get the arrow to the target. It was too far away, and my bow was not strong enough. That's the idea of being born a sinner and falling short of the glory of God. There is no way that I could hit the target of salvation and attaining the righteousness of God on my own. But here's where Jesus comes into the picture. Look at verse 24. He just said that we all fall short of the glory of God. But then he continues by saying, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now we're gonna focus the rest of our time here on verse 24 and next week pick it up in verse 25. But in verse 24 alone, there are four ways in which God has acted to make the sinner right with him, okay? First of all, he has justified. And you want to write these words down if you can, okay? He has justified. Notice it doesn't say there that we are justifying as if it's somehow up to us um, or as if we are the ones doing the work. This is a momentary, supernatural act outside of our ability. We are justified. Here's the definition of justification. It is the judicial act of God in which a sinner who has received Christ as their personal Savior is declared to be righteous. And if you want an easy way to remember that, okay, you can just remember justification means declared righteous. Justification means declared righteous. This is an act of God looking at the person who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus alone for salvation and declaring them to be righteous before him. This is not an act on their own. It is only by the supernatural working of God in them. A person who was standing condemned because of their sin is now declared righteous. Let's go back to Martin Luther for just a moment, okay? The Roman Catholic Church believed that justification was a process that you might could reach if you kept the seven sacraments. And if you did that to the best of your ability, then you may become righteous. But if at the time of your death, you're still not righteous enough, 
You could go to purgatory and have your sins purged or burned away through fire and suffering. Maybe then it would be enough for God to declare you righteous. But Luther took God's word very literally and realized that justification was instantaneous. It was a supernatural act of God in which he is the one who declares a person righteous simply through their faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else is needed. It's not based on their own merit. It's not a checklist of sacraments that needs to be completed. It's all based on simple faith in Jesus alone for salvation. That's it. That's justification. We also see that it is by his grace. It is by his grace. In, in Paul's 13 epistles, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, the word grace appears 95 times. 95 times in 13 books. In Romans chapter 4, so just right over from where we're at right now, we find one of the best descriptions of grace that I believe you're going to find in the whole Bible. And I'm going to give you this, this on the screen so that and you actually see it now. You can see it on the screen. That I'm giving it to you in the New King James Version rather than the ESV because in the New King James it uses the word grace, where in the ESV it's implied grace. But here's what it says. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So how in the world does that describe grace? In this way. When you're hired to do a job and you fulfill the requirements of that job, your employer owes you wages. Somebody say amen. <laughs> I did the job. Now pay me what I'm worth. If you work for somebody, you don't get grace. You get wages. They are indebted to you until they make right what they owe you. This is why a works-based salvation is so wrong. God doesn't owe you anything. And there's no way that you could ever work enough to earn a relationship with him. Romans chapter 11, verses 35 and 36. Who, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? The answer is no one. It's a rhetorical, rhetorical question. No one. For from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, God is the originator of everything. There's not anything that I could ever do to add to God. So there's no reason whatsoever for me to think that he owes me something. God doesn't owe me anything. In fact, because of my sin, the only thing that I am owed is death. That's the only thing that I am owed. But grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And God chooses to lavish his grace on us. And in this case, it's, it's receiving forgiveness of sin. It's receiving eternal life. It's only by grace that a person can be saved. And what we find next is that this justification through grace is a gift, free gift, now, the very nature of a gift is that it is something that you didn't work for or earn. If you didn't work for it, or excuse me, if you did work for it, then it's wages. Romans 6.23 is a passage we'll get to, maybe before too long. But it says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I deserve for my sin? It is just that I receive death. Oh, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
We are all born sinners, and the wages of sin should be death. Now, we all know what a gift is. Um, We've been given gifts at different points in our lives that we didn't deserve. But it is absolutely accurate to say that the greatest gift that you could ever receive is the free gift of life through Jesus Christ. Here's the next words that's found in verse 24. And it's the fourth way in which God has acted to make the sinner right with him. That is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he did so in the Greek language, okay? In the Greek language, the word redemption, here's what it means. Redemption means to purchase by way of a ransom off the slave market of sin, okay? To purchase by way of a ransom off the slave market of sin. The ransom was the life and death of the Son of God, Jesus, In Matthew chapter 20, we find Jesus came to serve and to give his life, and the word that's used there is as a ransom, to give his life as a ransom. It's us, humans. We are the ones on the auction block. We are enslaved to sin and to Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 is clear that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before Jesus redeemed us, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you were as you stand on the auction block, completely dead in your sin, enslaved to your sin. Then we know what comes next in Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You get on down and you read that by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. There's no reason for me to boast. When you were a slave to sin, God bought you at a great price, at the cost of the Son of God, of Jesus. And when you accept Jesus in faith, that he alone is your salvation, he redeems you, setting you free from your enslavement to sin. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on these verses, and he used this illustration. He said that a person is put on trial, and they're brought before the judge, One of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to be acquitted or else he will be condemned. Spurgeon says we all essentially stand before the judge and we are at any given moment either acquitted or condemned. It is not possible that any one of us should be acquitted on the grounds of our not being guilty. For we all must confess that we have broken the law of God thousands of times. You know, there's going to come a day in which every single knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you have a choice. You can bow now or you can bow later when it's too late. I pray that you have bowed your knee before God already and that you have repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus. And if you haven't, then today can be the day of salvation for you. 
Today can be that day that you repent. Don't wait because there is no one who has promised tomorrow. There's a song we're going to sing in just a couple of moments that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Is Jesus Lord of all in your life this morning? And if he's not, then I want to simply invite you to right now get out of your seat and come right up here to the front where somebody can pray with you and show you what it looks like to choose faith in Jesus. Maybe you've chosen faith in Jesus before. But you certainly haven't been living as if Jesus is Lord of your life. If that's you, then I would simply remind you of the gospel today. Remind you of just what you've been saved from, but also what you have been saved to. You've been saved from eternal death but you've been saved to eternal life. Don't ever forget that. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for these rich verses in Romans chapter 3. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit so burdens them that today has got to be the day to get saved. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen.